This is Brightline, the first new privately funded passenger rail line built in the U.S. in over 100 years. It was completed in 2018, and when the entire line is open later this summer, it'll stretch 230 miles from Orlando to Miami, and it was almost entirely done the good old-fashioned American way, with private equity. The most successful uh, train system in the U.S. is basically a government-run enterprise. So the Amtrak system from Washington to, uh, to New York, the Acela network, is a terrific product. It's one that I've used many, many times. But frequently used train lines in the U.S. like Acela are few and far between, with just 23 million trips in 2022 compared to France with 879 million. Moreover, the U.S. has zero miles of dedicated high-speed passenger rail, which is far behind most developed nations, and they're getting more expensive to build every year. If you look at France, you know, who is the European country that has been doing this the longest, the first lines were fairly easy, quick, and not that expensive to build, uh, but nowadays uh, you see the same pattern that they are, they are becoming more expensive and, and more difficult, take longer to build. The lack of rail infrastructure is in large part due to the prioritization of highways to support cars and trucks in the 1950s. By 1960, over 70 million vehicles had been registered with motor vehicle bureaus all over the country. But now that those roads and bridges are crumbling, trains are finally getting more attention. And while the United States is roughly 18 times bigger than France, the countries have about 21,000 miles and 18,500 miles of passenger rail lines respectively. As part of Biden's trillion-dollar infrastructure plan, $66 billion was allocated to rail maintenance and expansion, some of which will be granted to private companies. We used to be number one in the world in infrastructure. We've sunk to 13th in the world, but now we're coming back because we came together and passed the bipartisan infrastructure law, the largest investment in infrastructure since President Eisenhower's interstate highway system. Uh, Congress put in about $65, $66 billion over the next several years to support the deployment of regional higher speed rail. This is the largest investment in passenger rail since Amtrak was founded, but it still won't be enough to bring true high speed rail to the US. So can a privately owned passenger train company like Brightline make it happen? The company is planning to build a true high speed rail project connecting Los Angeles to Las Vegas called Brightline West, which it aims to open in 2028. But in the meantime, it is expanding in Florida. CNBC visited its newest train station in Orlando, where it's opening a new line connecting Central and South Florida in August to explore whether private rail can work in the U.S. In 2006, Fortress Investment Group made an investment in the Florida East Coast Railway, which was built by Henry Flagler in the late 1800s. This train was originally conceived as a train for both freight and for uh, passenger. It was passenger rail uh, all the way through the 1960s. And, you know, I spent quite a bit of time uh, traveling around the world, in particular in Europe, where the trains are a very, very typical form of uh, transit. And so I thought, you know, why not a train here? A team at Brightline looked around the world to see what works best for profitable passenger trains in countries where it's a popular way to travel. And after returning to the U.S., they considered which cities would benefit the most from being connected by rail. And what we discovered was when you have two big markets that have an existing demand base of travel between those two cities, that those cities are separated between 200 and 300 miles, plus or minus, there is an opportunity for high-speed passenger rail to become the preferred method of travel. 
When you look at all the city pairs that exist, the places around the, the country that would be um, attractive to you, Miami to Orlando jumps off the top of the page. I mean, it's kind of a lousy drive between them. It's this 230-mile trip between the two places with lots and lots of trouble in between. And when he says trouble, he means it. 80-some miles of that drive are on I-95, one of the deadliest highways in America, with one stretch in South Florida causing 108 fatal crashes and 123 deaths over the past 20 years. But with a reliable train, some of these fatal crashes could be avoided as more and more cars will be off the road. I think Brightline is already having a significant impact on traffic in South Florida. It's going to have a more broad-based impact across the state as we start the service into Orlando and we run the full 235 miles. However, because most of Brightline Florida is currently operating on existing tracks with train crossings instead of being elevated above the road, there have already been around 90 fatal run-ins with cars since service began. We looked at the, the corridor we built between here and the Cocoa and we thought this is actually the proper way to do it because you end up with your own uh, corridor, you don't have to share with anybody, you don't have any rail crossings which is great from a, a safety and a speed perspective and so there was again a lot of lessons learned. And partly why I was able to get the line up and running on time was because it shares the line with Florida East Coast Railway Freight. This model came from Amtrak, which borrows 96% of its lines from freight. But this has proven to come with additional difficulties for Amtrak, like long delays and increasing ticket pricing. We started because we owned the, uh, the freight train at the time. So, you know, the original concept was to take the existing rail corridor and basically build on that, and enhance that. Um, which we did. So from Miami to Cocoa Beach, it basically goes along the same corridor as the, uh, the, the Florida East Coast Railway, and we share that, that line with the freight train. And the rest of the way from Cocoa Beach to Orlando is fresh track, boosting the total cost of the Florida line to about $6 billion. The vast majority of successful train systems around the world are nationalized lines, meaning the government assumes full responsibility for the rails. But even Amtrak, the largest operator of passenger rail in the U.S., is structured as a private corporation and receives both private and public funding. While having privately owned passenger rail is not the typical method seen in train-dependent countries around the world, there are some examples of it working well. There are a number of private trains that have been very, very successful, right? Both uh, public-private partnerships, uh, government-sponsored uh, uh, trains, uh, there are, you know, the SNCF network in France, or you know, Trenitalia in Italy. Italo has been a big success. The Eurostar has been a rip-roaring success. There's, there's plenty of examples of both public and private uh, you know, ownership and sponsorship working well. However, these companies usually have had to use either government grants to begin their ambitious infrastructure projects or a bailout somewhere along the way. These systems are not risky in terms of operations, but they're risky in terms of getting built because you don't know how many years you're going to be delayed. You could be delayed by a change in politics, you'd be delayed by something in the economy, and so um, it's, it takes a really gutsy private company to put in billions of dollars and then take 10 years before they get any revenue. Even the Eurostar, which connects Great Britain to mainland Europe via the Channel Tunnel, had to receive a couple of shareholder and French state bailouts to stay afloat during the pandemic. Fortress does have a very diverse portfolio, ranging from ski resorts to clean energy, which help it pay for expensive projects like this. Uh, it is possible for private companies to deliver high-speed rail and also to do it well. It seems less possible uh, on the basis of the evidence we have, which uh, generally show that uh, all private companies also are not able to make uh, high-speed rail financially viable, so there needs to be a subsidy somewhere. And that's exactly what Brightline hopes to do for its upcoming project, Brightline West, 
a $12 billion, 218-mile line of high-speed rail connecting Las Vegas to Los Angeles. In the case of high-speed rail, not in all projects, but in, in, in case of very risky, big, very expensive infrastructure projects like high-speed rail, very often the public sector government ends up stepping in and saving the project, no matter how it was delivered, whether it was delivered by a private company or a public company. And Brightline West still expects this to be the first completed true high-speed rail project in the U.S., with trains running at over 186 miles per hour. But it might not be able to get by without a little help from Uncle Sam. In order to be a part of Biden's infrastructure initiative, Brightline West has to be built with unionized labor, American resources, and use 100% renewable energy, which is why it's pursuing a $3.75 billion federal grant in partnership with the Nevada Department of Transportation to get the project rolling, so to speak. No highway exists based on fully private funding. No airport exists based on private funding. And moreover, those roads need to be maintained every single year by additional investments made by the public sector. It also plans to build the line in the median of I-15, with land leased from the California Department of Transportation. Right Line West choosing to use existing transportation corridors is what we've found to be the secret sauce. It's what we've found to be um, helpful, and we've been working with state, cities, and counties. They like it too. And so if you can create this private-public partnership, it really aligns us and creates win-win results. This differs from the other major high-speed rail project in the U.S., the California High-Speed Rail, which is building from the ground up and not along a major interstate. Acquiring land has historically been one of the biggest hurdles for passenger train development in the U.S. Because Brightland is using pre-approved land, it's been able to move quickly and cheaply. The whole approval stage is, is often really stretched out in time and hard to go through and there, there are many hoops that you have to jump through and, and it, can, it can be frustrating for the people who are planning the project and who want to deliver the project. But it, it gets even harder once you get to delivery because that's when you, you really face people in the real world, you know, like the, uh, the people who own the land that you're going through and, and the neighbors and so on. But Brightline thinks that makes being a private company a logistical perk. One of the advantages of us being a private sector entity is we, we are able to both make decisions quickly and then act on those decisions quickly. And when you do that, you're able to move the ball forward in a very direct way. It's one of the virtues of, of sort of the entrepreneurial spirit of a private company. And this is a company built on an optimistic viewpoint of the future. At this point, it's practically derivative to say that car culture is synonymous with the United States. It's literally built into the fabric of the country, with 92% of households having access to at least one car. But if private companies like Brightline continue to expand, would Americans actually use it? This idea that Americans love their cars and are never getting out of their cars is a little bit of a nostalgic idea. Number one, you know, the statistics will bear that out. The, the, the age at which people get their driver's licenses has materially be getting, been getting older and older. The number of people that get a driver's license, that, that feel the car is that important in their life, is diminishing over time, right? So, so this is not the 1950s. Gas is not 25 cents a gallon, and the interstate highway system isn't brand new, right? This is a different world. There are just different sensibilities about all kinds of things, personal priorities, their view against the ecological impacts of the decisions that they make, all of these things favor the future of traveling by train as a smarter way to get around. Bryline is optimistic about its abilities to get people off the roads and into its trains, 
Reininger said they expect to transport up to 8 million people a year with the Florida line. Ticket prices from Miami to Orlando are expected to cost $39 for kids and up to $149 for premium seats. And it's something that doesn't just impact our city, our state, and our country. It actually impacts the world because many of the people that come here to the state of Florida are coming either to Miami, Orlando, or both. Brightline estimates 35 million people travel between Orlando and Miami every year, with most currently driving on I-95 and the Florida Turnpike. Yeah, the U.S. is blessed with the best interstate highway system in the world. That's probably one of the things that has retarded our growth in the, in the passenger side. But there's, there's real limitations in these big cities as to how many more lanes of traffic you can support. And so with that, I think you need a, a different solution. I think train travel is a big part of it. And Brightline West will eventually be serving a pair of cities that has 50 million visitors making the trip every year. 85% of those people are driving. Those people that are driving are limited to one road. Right, and that results in, not surprisingly, extreme congestion on that roadway, and it makes for a very challenged transit uh, driving along that one roadway. That's, that screams for another alternative. Because Brightline West is also being built in the median of where people are traveling and we're taking them out of our cars, we are the best billboard for our future success. People have to pass us for the four years that we're being constructed, and you know, every time they're sitting in traffic one way or the other, or every time there's a backup, they're gonna say, I wanna take that train as soon as it's open. And leadership in the company thinks both projects can garner enough riders to be profitable. Brightline West has the opportunity to run 10 or 11 million people a year based on the size of the market and the propensity of those people to move back and forth between those marketplaces. That will make it a very profitable entity. It will, it will be profitable at significantly less ridership than that. The threshold is much lower than what our aspirations are. They have already shown that if you provide a super high quality service and experience, that the people will show up by the millions, and they have. Brightline doesn't yet have any other private companies directly competing with its plans to create rail lines across the U.S. Texas Central is another hopeful project seeking to connect Dallas and Houston via rail, but plans have seemingly stalled after it ran into land acquisition challenges. You know, certainly we're the, uh, the clubhouse leader having built the first train in this country in the last 125 years, and hopefully the second one here shortly, but I expect there will be lots of competition you know, over time because it's a compelling business opportunity. As Brightline West could be the first high-speed rail line in the U.S., it's essentially viewing the project as a proof of concept, both for it and future competitors. I'd call it the blueprint for America's high-speed rail industry. And so what that means is we are building in America, we are utilizing American union labor, and we'll create about 35,000 construction-related jobs and 1,000 permanent jobs after all that are localized within the region that we're building in. We believe this is a great demonstration project and a proof of concept so that we can build and work with others to build other systems in the future. It's been able to achieve its deadlines so far with Brightline Florida and aims to break ground by the end of the year for Brightline West and complete the project before the LA 2028 Olympics. There's nothing that says private is necessarily better or, or worse. They can be very complementary to each other. I do think that in terms of developing and building things, private enterprise is probably a little more nimble than a, than a, than a government agency would be. But it does hope to work in conjunction with and connect its lines to government-subsidized trains like Amtrak or the California High-Speed Rail Project in the future. Thinking of all this as a network, as opposed to the Amtrak system versus a, you know, a public-private partnership system, but making sure it's all connected. If we're going to have a 
national system in the future, that's the only way we're going to be able to think about this. Brightline West and uh, California High Speed Rail, we're, we're complements of one, one another. We actually have the same goal and the same mission. We want to see a unified high speed rail network in America. And so we're starting on the West Coast to do that. Um, but we're rooting for them and they've been rooting for us. And together, I believe we're going to do that.